Hello and welcome to Co-Produce Care. Today we have with us Roy Lilly. Um, so welcome Roy. Uh, thank you for coming on our Co-Produce Care chat. And I usually kind of do a little bit of a Google search before I interview somebody. And I did that with you. And I had a few job titles. So this is why I haven't said Roy's job title. So I've got former NHS chairman, founder of the Academy of Fabulous NHS Stuff, writer, 27 books, um, broadcaster, commentator, um, conference speaker, background in business, retired three times, still working. There's a huge amount of experience you've had. Um, so really looking forward to this chat. But what I want to know first is why did you start the Academy of Fabulous NHS Staff? And maybe a little bit about what it is. What a great place to start. Well, um, here's the full story. There was a trust, uh, I, I won't name them, uh, but because they'd moved on, but they got themselves into trouble. It was discovered that they said that they'd given patients uh, chemotherapy and it turned out they hadn't. Mm. How, how did all that happen? Well, they were expecting a visit from the Care Quality Commission, the CQC, and they were worried. So some middle managers lied and they falsified the documentation. Unfortunately, three patients died. Now, we don't know whether they died because they were very sick and would have died anyway, or whether they died because they didn't get the chemotherapy. Anyway, there was a row, if you can imagine. The police were called. The chief executive, who was a really good chief executive, he was a doc and a manager, he said, look, I'm responsible for this, uh, but I'm not culpable, but it's on my watch, so I'll step down. The chairman went. The trust went through a really bad time. And, and I remember I was at a, a conference talking about this and I said, you know, what is it that turns good people with a strong sense of vocation, highly qualified, terrific people, what, what have we done to turn them into crooks? And of course it was the threat of inspection and the threat of regulation. Now, you know, everyone knows that inspection is no way of improving quality. If you turn up it's good, you've wasted your time. If you turn up it's bad, it's too late. Mm -hmm. So that kind of thing is, you know, it's gone out of the arc, but we still do it, we still have the CQC, it still wastes a shitload of money, it still doesn't improve anything. And I happen to say, as a bit of an afterthought really in what I was saying, wouldn't it be a better idea if we had somewhere that people could go when they had a problem, they could ring up and say, hi, uh, we've got a problem with our chemotherapy, we're falling behind with the targets, has anybody got the same problem and can we, uh, can we talk to them to figure out, you know, how do they get out of a mess because we're in a mess and we want some help? But because it didn't exist. And so I said, almost as a kind of throwaway, really. Wouldn't it be great if we had something like, I don't know, the Academy of Fabulous Stuff, where people could ring up and say, hi, I've got a problem, can you help me? And you know, the, the audience kind of t took it as a bit of a joke, but saw that there was some sense in it. And when I got off stage, a very senior guy in the NHS came up to me, he said, you know what, Roy, you're right. 
why don't you start the Academy of Fabulous Stuff? And I said, well, you know, do that, I don't know. Um, so I thought, well, why not? So I did. Uh, and I found a, a wonderful woman, Dr. Terry Porritt, uh, who at the time was running a website called Apollo, which was a kind of a resource for nurses. Um, and I liked what she was doing. So I said to her, why don't we do this? So um, we bought uh, the kit, the server, had the website developed and designed. We've learned a lot on the way. We got most of everything that we started with was wrong. <laughs> We've had to fix it along the way. And um, now it's a global resource, really. And as far as I know, it's the only free to access a resource about good practice. And that's how it started. Uh, it's a, as an antidote, really, to inspection. Yeah. And I love the fact that you've got loads of resources and it's starting from a positive place because there's so much in the media that focuses on what's wrong with care what's happened what the next incident the next deaths and to actually say we're actually doing fantastic stuff and Mm. you're always on twitter if people follow the website or follow twitter your account or the academy's account there's always like lovely clips of some great things great ideas so it's that constant flow of positivity which i think is fantastic well you know i mean a million people today while we're you know recording this a million people will go through uh the uh, hands of the nhs and god knows how many will go through social care can we say that they will all have a good experience? No, we can't. Can we say that everyone will go home satisfied? No, we can't. Can we, go, can we say everyone will meet someone who will do the right job? The answer is no, we can't, because you can't. But what we can do is we could say, like, one, if we make a mistake, we'll find out what we've done and fix it so it doesn't happen again. And secondly, we can say, Do you know, there's a, if we've got a problem, we know where to go to find an answer, mm. which is what we've tried to do with the academy. So it's born out of pragmatism. <clears throat> it's also born on a, a management theory uh, called positive deviance. So here we go. What's positive deviance? Yeah. Uh, all organisations have a line of performance. Is there a sort of average performance? Below that level is negative deviance above that level is positive deviance so when they do better than they've been doing now a positive deviant is a person and positive deviants are people who given the same resources as everyone else given the same problems as everyone else will find an answer Mm. there will always be positive deviants in organizations and what we do is we give them the time and the space to show us the good stuff that they're doing. It's almost like the idea of positive deviance from the norm or from the mean, yeah. the average, going above it. Um, I was interested, I haven't looked into it too much, but you've got like an um, awards, I think, yes. academy awards. Is that just to celebrate certain like exceptional cases? Can people well, it, they're very democratic and they're a bit wacky as well, yeah. uh, as you might imagine. Um, we, we say if Carling did awards, they do it like us. So they, they, they are wacky. They're a show, really, a vaudeville show with awards dropped in the middle of it. Um, what we want to do is we want to celebrate the good stuff that people are doing. The, the idea of the awards came from the users of the website. And, and we don't choose the winners. Uh, people 
we aggregate the number of views that stuff gets, how popular it is, and we ask people who are using the system to vote. Great. So it's very democratic. I, I never know who's won what until mm. we get there on the day. And uh, so they're chosen by the people who use the website. That's brilliant. And um, how many people have you got using the, the website and interacting well, with Well, I mean, there's like, probably today, there'll be about 3,000 people who will hit the website wow. looking for stuff. Um, that we get probably a, a constant stream of people saying, can we put this on? Yeah, yeah. Um, That's brilliant. And so Terry, Dr. Terry Porritt, she's actually a specialist nurse. Mm. So her doctorate is in nursing. She uh, invigilates it all for us and makes sure that you know, the stuff is... But, but what we say is, look, if it's up and running and it's working, yeah. we'll, we'll put it on the academy. Uh, it may not be right for you where you're working, but maybe there's a bit about it that you can copy. We have a thing a phrase called pinch with pride. Mm. So you know, anything that's on there, it's copyright free, steal it. It's just showing that good practice, isn't it, yeah. that you wouldn't normally get. So you are in a position with the Academy that you interview a load of people, you're at conferences, you've interviewed politicians, um, academics, uh, people who are high up in the NHS. What would you say was the one biggest issue within health and social care which the newly appointed government needs to address? Well, they will say they are addressing it, but for me, uh, the biggest issue is workforce mm. um, and it, I mean it's not just us it's it's a global thing I mean my friend uh, Mark Bricknell wrote a terrific book called Human which is uh, a global look at, at the healthcare sector mm. and uh, and the workforce right I think it, I think there's something like we're short of seven million care workers on a international basis you know and we so what what are we what are we doing here we're we're saying okay well we're going to recruit 50,000 more nurses well good luck with that because we can try and encourage people to recruit go into university and become trained for a nurse or let's just talk about nursing for a moment well fine and the government has now introduced a subsistence a subsistence amount uh, which is to be welcomed um, but we're still losing one in five nurses in training. Mm. Uh, and we have to figure out why is that and fix it. The next port of call for us is uh, immigration. Can we, you know, and personally I don't think it's right to go to some of these countries overseas and, and pinch their nurses because, you know, they need them there. Although it is true in Singapore and places like that. They, uh, they over-recruit and over-train expecting some nurses to go overseas. Uh, but we're still not clear, or I'm not clear, on what the government's intentions are for migration in the future. And I think, you know, if I was working, if I was in Europe somewhere thinking, well, should I go and work in England? I think, well, I'm not so sure I do. I don't want to get there, get settled, get a house, bring my kids over and all the rest of it, and then get thrown out or find I can't stay. So I think all the time there's that uncertainty around migration, there's going to be a problem with that. So, and the third thing they can do is to make sure that as an employer we are warm welcoming and a good employer and clearly you know something like 600 nurses a week i think are leaving uh, and we're not replacing them uh, and i guess the truth is we do have enough nurses we certainly have 600,000 nurses on the register and 370,000 who are actually working in the nhs well what do the rest do well the rest i don't know i don't know what they're doing but i mean if we were a better employer i think we would retain nurses and i think um which is 
the one thing we can do in the short term and uh, I think we would attract more nurses in social care of course it's even more complex because most care homes are run with staff whose first uh, language isn't English they come from overseas they are seldom qualified uh, beyond the basics uh, and they're dealing with an increasingly vulnerable group of, of uh, residents who really need nursing care as much as they need care care. Uh, and it's a very wearing job and because of the way it's reimbursed the, the salaries are pitifully low and it's no wonder that there's a huge turnover in that sector. And we're dealing you know, with some of our most vulnerable the vulnerable citizens. So for me we really do have to roll up our sleeves and try and fix the workforce issues. If yeah. we could fix that, I think a lot of the other problems would go away. Yeah, um, I don't think many people would argue with that um, there's a lot about workforce in the press and so yeah. that's a massive issue. One of the things that I was watching recently was your interview. You were brave enough to go on to Good Morning Britain um, and you had a bit of a Barney with uh, <laughs> Piers Morgan. Yeah, I did. And it was a couple of years ago and it was an issue around uh, car parking charges yeah. or something like that. And so workforce is definitely one of the mass massive issues. Another thing that comes up a lot is funding. Yeah. And I suppose the car par parking charging charges were all about uh, you know, getting more money so that we can resource the NHS in some way. Do you think that there is a funding problem within the NHS? Well, look, let me give a bit of the background to the funding issue. The NHS was born on the 5th of July 1948. Between 1948 and 2008, all those years, 60 odd years or whatever it is, the NHS's annual uplift in funding has been, on average, about 4%. Some years, it's in, the, in the Thatcher years, it was lower. In the Tony Blair's year, it was higher. But if you average it out, it's about 4%. 2008, we had the world banking crisis. Government did a handbrake turn on all funding for government departments, social care and everything. Uh, and between 2008 and 2000 and probably 18, we've had 10 years of more or less flatline funding. 0.1 percent you know very small amounts so you can't do 10 years of flatline funding with growth in demand well over four percent and not have something go wrong so what has happened is the the workforce plan has been in shreds trusts have racked up huge amounts of debt i mean i think two-thirds of the trust now have got structural debt that they're trying to fix um and if, if we could get back to a, a predictable annual increment of around 4%, then I think we would kind of stabilise the problem and try and get back to where, where we were. Now, the amount of money that the government is giving us now, it, which is a huge chunk of money, $35 billion, and they're right to say it's the biggest chunk the NHS has ever had in living memory, but it's come from a very low base. Mm. That's the problem. And if you look at the historic average of 4% and you look at the going forward average, it's less than 4%, it's about 3.2%. And although you know, these, we're arguing like small percentage points, it makes a big difference to an organisation that's trading or, or performing at the margins of its, its financial performance. So I, the finance thing is not 
we are a long way from the finance thing being done and dusted. My worry is politicians understandably are saying, oh, we've given the NHS this huge chunk of money, we've fixed the NHS. And, and that will lead into public expectations. And when things don't go right, and clearly funding is at the heart of why things don't go right, probably going to say, well, hang on a minute, you've had the biggest funding and blah, blah, blah. And we then have to explain a very complicated set of circumstances. We've got this big chunk of money from a very low base and don't expect miracles because it ain't going to happen. Another sort of contentious interview that you had on TV was with Eamon Holmes. Do you remember that from... Uh, this morning. I'm always having a punch up on this I love morning. it. It's great. Just say what you think. But actually, you, it wasn't you this time. It was him. Yes. So he was having an issue with the NHS. Yeah. He was talking about an issue with his parent. He'd gone and to A and E, and you know, you because you asked him. You said, "Well, when have you last been to A and E?" And he yeah. got really quite upset about it. <laughs> there was a little bit in the press about it. Um, and we go out to social media to ask them some questions. Uh, and this one is from John uh, Chalmers, and he's asking about the reputation of the NHS. Oh, dear, here we go. So he's I asking, do love social media. Yeah, I know, <laughs> but it's pretty straightforward. Um, so he wants to ask, how do we go about restoring the reputation of our wonderful NHS? Well, it is wonderful. Uh, and you know, I think it's. Uh, I was looking at some of the uh, data during the election, and uh, aside from Brexit, uh, the the thing that the public were most worried about was the NHS, and and I think the public kind of understand that when the when they get to A and E and there's a queue around the block, they can see that it's not people going for a tea break or being lazy or not being bothered. They can see doctors and nurses stressed to hell trying to get around and sort people out. And then you know, like 10 more ambulances arrive. So they can see for themselves the problem the NHS has got. And it is interesting that we're living at a time now which where, where pretty much all the targets that the NHS is set, we haven't met. Uh, and you would imagine there will be a public outcry about that. Well, actually, there isn't, because people kind of get the fact there's not been enough money, there's not enough staff, there's too many patients, and they, they are kind of waiting for the government to fix it. Now, you know, Boris Johnson has stuck his neck on the line, and, and I get he, I, I think I get, the fact that he gets the fact of the NHS. When he was the mayor of London, I do know that he was pushing David Cameron to be able to run London healthcare from the mayor's office. He wanted to run it a bit like in, in it's done in Manchester now. They never did it. I don't know why they never did it. I mean, and London's healthcare is hugely complex, but he wanted to run healthcare. So I think he gets the importance of healthcare. I mean, he's, he's got a lot of other thoughts and he is a bit of a wacky guy, but I think he kind of gets it. He, they have given us a shed load more money. And I, and I think, you know, to get back to your question, I'm not so sure that in the, in the mind of the public, the reputation of the NHS is damaged. I think the performance and the expectations are damaged. But still, and this is a very tricky thing to say, 95% of people going through A&E should be seen in four hours. Now, we haven't hit that target for, I don't know, a long time now, and it's down at the late 70s. We are still getting, out of every 100, 70 people are still being seen in four hours. Okay, 30 aren't. And no one wants to be in that 30. 
But I think people get the reasons for that. And so uh, people are, I think, forgiving. And they're not looking to the NHS with all its fables and uh, with its foibles and failures, and, and it certainly has plenty of those. I think they're looking to the politicians and they're saying, you've got to help the NHS get back on its feet because everyone realises yeah, we're in round 10 and we're in knockout territory. So essentially, these targets are just really unhelpful. Well, look, I, I've, uh, I've, I've always been ambivalent about targets. Um, you know, you hit the target, you miss the point. That's, that happens so often. And the interesting thing about targets, if you take the A&E target, the history of the A&E target was that John Major's government first started introducing some light-touch targets. Tony Blair came in and he went crazy with targets. And he said 100% of people must be seen in A&E in four hours, 100%. Now, the NHS could, just couldn't do it. And in the end, uh, we settled on 98%, which was felt to be practical and gave the NHS some breathing space with some complicated patients that needed longer than four hours. So then that was stepped down again and uh, Andrew Lansley in 2011, I think it was, uh, reduced it to 95% simply because the target couldn't physically be met. Now, of course, targets are going to be abandoned and recalibrated so that they'll say, you know, the sickest people have to be seen first. Well, really? Well, that's rocket science, isn't it? Yeah. And when targets first came in, the Tories accused Labour of distorting clinical priorities with targets. They said they put the clock before the people. Well, guess what's happening now? The Tories are saying we're going to abandon targets uh, because it distorts clinical priorities. And so the, the genesis of time-based targets was a political thing. It was, it, it's come to have a clinical validity and a lot of people now have been working on getting people through A&E a lot better and it's the focus, uh, the targets are focused on uh, better flow dynamics and getting people through and of course in the, in the sort of, well let's think, you know, the, in the 20 years we've had targets there's no question about it that, that medical devices have improved, uh, clinical performances has got better, we've been able to look after people better, pharmaceutical products have improved. There's a whole shedload of stuff that's got better in those 20 years. Who is to say that the flow through A&E wouldn't have got better without targets? My guess is it probably would. But they are artificial. A lot of people have lost their jobs because their, their hospital didn't meet the targets and I'm still left wondering really whether or not that's the best thing to do. I think a, cl a clinician with good common sense realises if you have a heart attack you've got to be seen before the fact you've fallen off your bike and broken your arm. Mm. It's not rocket science. It's almost a way of uh, an example like you said where these targets become so political. Mm. You just lose the person and the purpose. It's just it's a really good point. Well the politicians, even the politicians point of view, they have to stand up on every Wednesday on health questions in the House of Commons and explain why this month we've not met the target again. Mm. And they say, well, the NHS is very busy and we've got more patients and we've got more this and more that and the other and blah, blah. blah. Uh, and they don't want to keep doing that. But what they really need to say is, we're having a root and branch look at this to figure out what might be a better way. Mm. Moving on to uh, technology. So you've already said it's in the years that the targets have been introduced, that technology and things have mm. changed and how we treat people has changed. 
So is the technology then the, um, the answer to a lot of the issues that we're having within health and social care? Undoubtedly. Um, and we've never fulfilled the potential of technology. If you look at the history of it, we first got big computers here from the United States and the software was designed to um, provide insurance companies with bills for patients. It was never, never anything else. And we, in, and we called them uh, electronic patient uh, data, blah, blah, something like that. I can't remember what it's called now, but it was fundamentally, it was just, it was an administrative tool. Um, but they weren't much cop when they came. We had a lot of problems with them. We've gone through Connecting for Health, which was a big initiative. We put a lot of money into it. And people were very critical of Connecting for Health. But the fact of the matter is that we've, we've only got what we've got today because we've got Connecting for Health. We've got email, we've got prescribing and all that. So the, you know, the, the railroad has been put, the foundations have been put in place. But when it comes to, uh, for example, outpatient appointments, uh, there's a hospital I know I visited. They spend a million pounds a year on postage stamps, sending out letters for people to say, please come to your outpatient appointments. They switched to a, a different system, uh, and now 80% of people elect to have their outpatient appointments on their mobile phone, FaceTime or Skype or whatever, and they're just getting on and doing that. Uh, if you look at uh, GP consultations, I mean, I get up and, and go to work in the morning. Uh, I, I drive past my GP surgery is closed. I come home in the evening, it's closed. Weekends, it's there for an emergency and, you know, so what? Uh, and on Sunday, well, I, don't know, I go to church and sprinkle myself with holy water and pray for a cure. You know, it's, uh, I never see the lights on in primary care. Now, that's because, not because primary care is lazy. They can't do anymore. They just can't do it. And, of course, the thing is, when I get on the train at the railway station, not just me, there are 800 other people who've not been able to see their GP. So the obvious solution is something like the Babylon app or Push Doctor or Go Doctor, <coughs> where, again, I can talk to my GP on my phone. Why don't we do that? Well, it's, it's about reimbursement mechanisms, it's about contracting. Uh, hospitals get paid to do outpatient appointments face-to-face, -face. they don't get paid to do them on the phone. So. If we, it, it's a system issue. We've got the technology, but we don't have a system that it fits into. Mm. So we really do need now to start talking about how we kind of shred the system and plug this stuff in. Because there's some fantastic stuff. There's, you know, mums have got apps now, uh, maternity apps. and they, I mean, they're, they're up, there's a whole load of stuff that we really ought to be doing. I mean, nurses in hospital, when they do their rounds and they do the temperature and the observations, as they're called, and many of them are still done manually, uh, when they could easily be done by a machine and Bluetoothed into the, into the patient records. Mm -hmm. The technology is there. It's the system that we have to really try and fix. Yeah, yeah. And also, I suppose, because our systems are so based on old technology, it's just migrating all of that yeah. to the new ways of working, getting up, uh, up to date. And yeah, well, login. I mean, everybody complains about login, mm. login times. Well, that's because the, the, there are six stages of login. Every stage has to drag a bit of baggage from the last and then eventually get a whole string of, of, uh, of code that's been written and added to and, the, and it slows down. And in care homes, I mean, there's absolutely no reason why care homes should not have access to patient records. Uh, and and, and uh, there's no reason why um, care homes should not be regarded as being in the wider NHS. But we've got, you know, GDPR, 
uh, which protects people's data, but actually it does a lot of damage. We've had Dame Fiona Caldicott looking at as a digital guardian. Or I mean, it seems to me everything that's done digitally is done to be unhelpful, and we need to scrap the whole thing because I think that all of the data protection framework that there is is does not reflect the data architecture that we have now. This should be one rule. Data can be collected uh, and used only for the purpose for which it's collected. I mean, how, that's a, not a very complicated definition, and I'm sure it could be finessed. But if we did that, we wouldn't have this ludicrous divide between health and social care. You know, you've got social care uh, uh, on Rio, and, and local authorities using Rio, and we're on EMIS and GP the practice. The two don't mix, and it's just, you know, it's yeah. crazy. Uh, through all your interviews and people talking about technology, do you have anyone saying they're a little bit cautious about the move to technology? Um, one of the things I think of is that it becomes, it's the unknown, it's controlled by other companies, it might be controlled by private companies, and if they go down, if there's any kind of issues or corruption, then we're very vulnerable. Um, I mean, is it a type of privatisation through the back door, if you like? I, I, I don't think what people are worried much about the the actual catastrophic failure of a server or something in the cloud falling over. But I think what patients do have a concern about is will their data be kept confidential? You know, nobody wants their data to appear on the front page of the Daily Mail. Well, it, in fact, it's not going to, is it, really? I mean, most of us lead anonymous lives where, you know, you go and see the doc when you have to and we haven't got anything glamorous or spectacularly interesting wrong with us. Uh, if you're a, a star um, um, and, you know, let's say you were a young uh, actress who'd had a termination in a, in a previous life, it, it, you know, it will be wrong for that to, to be... Uh, put into into the media, so I think I think that it's about the data protection issues, and we've had a go at doing that, and and in order to reassure the public, we used a word that I don't think I've ever heard anybody ever use anywhere. We said we were going to pseudonymize the data. Well, what does that mean to the man, man in the street? You know, I was on a radio program talking about this, and the, the guy said to me, well, you know, people are worried about their data. But I said, yeah, but don't worry, because we're going to sodomize the data. And I just, I just realized, <laughs> I realized that my slip of the tongue. Slip of the tongue. <laughs> but uh, anyway, we all thought that was the end of our broadcasting career, but somehow or other we got away with it. But nobody understood what pseudonymizing meant. And it's, it means it's anonymizing it, but allowing the integrity of the data to still be a string. But, but it, so we've handled that badly. And, and my data on its own is a waste. No one's interested. Your data and mine together, compared and contrasted, might be of interest. Or you with another woman or me with another man. Not of great value, really. But all our data together is priceless because we can look for trends, we can build algorithms, we can do population-based health, and it's data, they say, and it's right, it's the new oil, and we really should be making more use of data to figure out who gets sick, what fixes them up, did it work, what did it cost, do we want to do it again? Five simple questions, 
that we can't answer. And joining up, like you say, social care and health is a major part of that, yeah. So then, following on about talking about technology, have you got any good examples of how technology has been used to improve services? Well, hundreds. Uh, but one uh, comes to mind just recently that uh, I, I wrote about. It's, uh, it's in Wigan. And it's a, it's a care home thing. I mean, one of the, the crossover problems and issues between health and social care is, is care homes. And, you know, far too often care homes have a problem with a resident ring 999 because, you know, they, they don't know what to do. They're, they're not nursing homes. There's a risk issue for them as well. So they, they ring 999. What, what they did in, in Wigan I thought was really cute. And for me... I, I, technology works when it's really simple, and and so what they've done is they've given the um, the the CCG had given a care home the, an iPad. They've given them um, an NHS email address. Now that's important because that takes them inside this sort of uh, magic perimeter that the NHS works in to stop people hacking and stuff. And the and they trained the care home the care assistants to do uh, temperatures and oxygen stats and you know all, all the vital signs up and do it properly uh, and when they had a problem with a resident they they come on with the iPad on Skype and there's a 24-7 nurse-led response so they come on the nurse and they say this is Mrs. Brown uh, she's got a high temperature, she doesn't feel very well, and, and then the nurse said, well, you know, Mrs. Brown, hi, this is nurse, whatever, um, how are you feeling? And, and they'd make an assessment, they'd ask their questions, and um, the care assistant could answer some of them, and the resident could answer, and the nurse would make a judgment at that point. They'd say, yes, I'll, um, I'll, I'm going to email you over a prescription now, or they'd say, hmm, I'm not so sure about this, I'm going to ask uh, one of the uh, community staff to pop in and see you. Or they might say, well, I think you should see a GP. Or they might say, hmm, I don't like this at all, I think we should get you into hospital. And that simple piece of technology has cut admissions from the care homes by, and hang on to your hats for this figure, 68%. No. Now, you know, what would happen if we gave every care home in the country an iPad and an NHS email address, you know, how much money would that save, how many beds would that free up, how many ambulance trips would it, so, so that, there's an example of simple technology that it, it doesn't take a, a lot of money to implement, being used sensibly as a first port of call. So I think, we, you know, if we could get ourselves into the mindset where it's, we have a digital first NHS. So you don't ring the GP for an appointment. You get on your phone and talk to a GP there and that, and then we go from there. We've got to move to digital first, because if we don't, we're just going to run out of people to look after people. That seems like a really good example of showing how you're almost moving towards a way of integrating social care with health because, like you said, you're able to use the same email system so you can work across different technology um, types or, or systems. So there's a lot of talk about integration and integrating everything so it works seamlessly, so that one person has one problem and everybody is able to seamlessly work around it. Do you feel like integration um, is actually happening in health and social care? No, I, I, I don't. Um, and there, there are a whole load of reasons. Um, I mean, I've you know, I've, 
done a lot of jobs in healthcare. I'm also, I, I was, and not now, I was a local authority councillor. So I've had the experience of social care from the other side of the wall. Look, the, the real issue is not we need to merge. The real issue is that neither social care nor health care have been adequately funded. Local government has had its budgets actually cut. Social services are responsible for adult social care. The only wriggle room they've got is eligibility criteria. There are four levels of that. Most local authorities now are at the absolute extreme of eligibility criteria. So what that means is you really do have to need help before you get it, because they haven't got any money. So what that means is there are about 900,000 people now who used to get social care who no longer get it. We've got 900,000 refugees in our system. Is it any wonder a shed load of them turn up at A&E? Of course they do. And so merging the two organisations just merges the problem. The real problem is funding and workforce. And I think it's perfectly possible for two local, for, for two local organisations to work together. If you merge them, here's the problem. Local government works on a, an eligibility criteria. It works on a funding criteria. The NHS doesn't. The NHS is free at the point of need. Social care isn't. It's worked out on, on a means-tested basis, really. And it's, it's merging the philosophies. That is the problem. Will all social care become free, or will NHS become means-tested? And that's the problem of the two organisations. My own view is that social care should be free at the point of use. And I think we should pay that through taxation. I mean, if you look at the NHS, we all put a few quid in the tin because one day we might get run over by a bus. And if we do, the money's in the tin. If not, the money's in the tin for somebody else. We're all going to get old. We put a few quid in the tin. Some of us will get old, have healthy lives and die on a golf course. Other people will become frail, that need help, have dementia. They'll need a lot more help. The money's in the tin. The answer is taxation, socialised care. You know, it's all this business about means testing and selling a house and blah, blah. It's a nonsense. We know what we need to do. I think merging my, myself, I think it's a diversion. I wouldn't bother with it. It's going to be a huge upheaval. We know what to do. Fund it properly. Yeah. Um, I wanted to go back to, uh, you talked a little bit about nursing, and you've talked in the past about specialisms um, and focusing on nurses becoming specialists in a, in a field. I know from my experience, my son had nephrotic syndrome, and I'm lucky enough to live in Bristol. Had a fantastic um, doctor, Lovely. Dr. Sure, Steve. Exactly, yeah. uh, and I'm very easy. For some other parents, they were in Dorset and they had to come all the way up to Bristol in order to get those specialisms. Do you think there should be more nurses that, uh, or should we, we should be supporting nurses to become specialists? In I do, areas? absolutely, I do. I mean, Dr. Terry Porritt, who is the uh, the director of the Academy of Fabulous Stuff, she's a specialist nurse. She's a colorectal nurse. And I've seen uh, the benefits of nursing, so encouraging nurses to become specialists, I think is very important. I mean, unfortunately, what's been happening is the nurses have been taken away from their specialisms to do general nursing and downgraded. So some of them have been downgraded from a you know, grade eight to do work of a grade six or seven. 
Uh, and so there's, you know, there's a kind of uh, scandal going on in nursing, but absolutely I do. I mean, I, I remember uh, years ago going to the Golden Helix Award in Berlin, and it was award, an award for quality in healthcare. And we kind of sat through this lavish award thing. And some nurses from Germany won an award for being nurse nephrologists. Right, and I remember we all sat there and said, "What is a nurse nephrologist?" We had no idea what it was, uh, and that was, you know, back in probably the late seventies, eighties. And um, uh, one of the, one of our hospitals uh, won an award, Leicester, I think, won an award uh, for their one-stop uh, cancer, breast cancer diagnosis treatment. Um, but yes, I do absolutely believe. That, that nurses can uh, lead the way in a lot of these specialisms. They, of course, there are a lot more of them now, but they need the time from working at the front line to study. I mean, nurses now pay for their own career advancement and their own study. Originally, they would get a bursary from their organisations or their organisations would pay to train them. It doesn't happen very often now. Uh, so another question that we had from social media was from Carol Ford Donson and she asks about you. Um, so who has been your biggest influence in your life? Yeah, that's a really tough question. Mm. Um, it's being filmed, would I say the right person? Yeah, I, <laughs> I don't know. I, I mean I've been I've been influenced by so so many people. I mean in my business life I was uh, I, I suppose the busy, biggest influence on me was reading um, my first uh, Tom Peters book about management and I was lucky enough to meet him later on. Um, there's a guy called Zig Ziglar as well who's a terrific speaker and he, he influenced me. But the things that influence me most are when I go and, and visit hospitals and GP practices, the people that influence me most are the people who work at the front line, the anonymous people doing an amazing job. I mean, yesterday I was in Dorset at a GP practice and the things that they're doing there in co-production of care with their patients are amazing and that's influenced me and influenced my thinking. So I've, had, I've been really fortunate and had a lot of people uh, influenced me. I suppose in politics, the the person that influenced me most around healthcare was Ken Clark, because he was the, the architect of the Thatcher reforms, and he really got the idea that you should, if you let people free and do their thing, they'll do it better, and that was a big influence as well. So, I've, and there was a guy at the King's Fund, uh, a man called Martin Fisher who's one of the cleverest people I've ever met. And he got me thinking quite differently about healthcare and how we should address it. So I've been lucky. I've had a, a lot of influences. And another question that Carol asks is, what is your motivation and how do you um, get that amazing work ethic that you have doing, doing so many different things? I, don't know, I think my work ethic comes from my parents, you know, my mum and my dad, because they just you know, sort of get a grip and get on with it you know that was how I was brought up but I, I I'm you know in my mid-70s now and I'm and I regard myself as hugely lucky to be able to do 
what I do, go and see the best the NHS has got and talk and write about it and encourage people to do better. The Academy of Fabulous Staff keeps me going. I, we've just uh, um, taken over the running of the Institute of Health Managers and, and that inspires me, you know, where we can help health managers to learn and do better. And so I, I mean, I just think, well, I, I mean, a lot of my friends are retired now and, and actually a, a lot more are dead. But when I, I think, well, what would I do? If I really wanted to do something, I'm in a position where I could do it. But I don't know what I want to do other than this. I paint, as you know, you know, I put my stuff on uh, social media. I, I enjoy doing that. Um, that's kind of a relaxation. Do I want to be a full-time painter? Well, I don't think I do. I, I want to do what I'm doing. And I'm going to do it until I drop. Until I end up in A&E. <laughs> Which is hopefully never. Well, yeah, not waiting for four and a half hours, yes. No. Yeah. Um, I'm interested to hear about the painting, actually. Do you find that therapeutic? Yeah, How I love it. Did you get it. into it? Yeah, I did. Well, I, don't know, I got into it uh, when I was about 19. I, okay. I was, yeah, I didn't paint at school. I just, uh, I met someone and they, they said, well, have a go. And I did. And I've been painting ever since. So I, I very much enjoy it. I, yeah. I, I did quite a lot of stuff on iPad as well at one stage mm. um, but uh, yeah I love it yeah um, so we're coming to the section of the interview where we ask our cactus questions so for anyone who doesn't know our cactus questions are prickly questions about health and social care mm -hmm. um, and they aren't too prickly they're pretty much the same sort of things we've been talking about issues and questions around health and social care um, but one of the first one is some advice you might give. So is there a really huge mistake that you think has been made in health, a decision whether it's political or by NHS leaders, which you just think, let's never do that again? Absolutely I do. I have, I have no uh, compunction about answering. This is, an easy, this is the easiest question. Uh, and that's Andrew Lansley's health and social care reforms in 2012. They were a disaster. We said they would be a disaster. Everybody was against it. No one would listen. I think only the Royal College of Surgeons and the National Association of Primary Care supported him. Everybody took one look at it and said, you're bonkers to do this. Do not do it, Andrew. But he wouldn't listen. And what have we got now? A disaggregated mess of a health service that Simon Stevens, who is the chief executive of the health service, is now trying to put right. There may be some parliamentary time to unpick some of the worst excesses of it, but it was a bonkers thing to do. A disaggregated leadership model in a national service just doesn't work. And of course, it came at the same time as, as um, we had the austerity policy. And so the whole thing has been a disaster, absolute disaster. You're going to have to read it back a little bit for me. Um, what are the things that he put in place? That well, what he did, he, 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 he annexed the Department of Health and it started NHS, uh, well, and we event that with NHSI, but that eventually, originally it was Monitor and the Trust Development Authority. I mean, it's just a tangle of stuff. NHS England was responsible for commissioning and GPs and then he hived off workforce planning to health education in England and digital. I mean, what Andrew Lodge did was he, he took a wrecking ball 
to the bureaucracy of the NHS. He said, this is a bureaucratic mess, let's smash it up, let's make people more responsible for stuff. And that. But of course what he did was create a lot of in interfaces, joins between the departments. So we had Monitor that looked after hospitals, the Trust Development Authority, that's now become NHSI. Had NHSE that's responsible for commissioning, the GPs, there was no one in charge. Mm. You know, I used to tell the joke about, you know, if the Martians landed and said, we want to start the NHS on Mars, take me to your leader, we'd say, well, we don't know who to take you. I mean, it, it was, it's just been a bonkers mess. Mm. And thank God now we're trying to scrape the last of it off our shoes. Mm. So that's now where Simon Stevens is coming in and, and trying, to, yeah. trying to put it back together. Um, and the other question that I had was about diversity um, in the upper echelons of the NHS. Um, and there was a report called the Snowy White Peaks of Roger Klein. Roger Klein, absolutely. Um, and he revealed some stats and some information about how there is a paucity or a lack of certain groups and ethnic sure, groups. Black and ethnic minority, yeah, right. So um, I, I read in one of your, I listened to one of your videos, and you talked about. I never having gone for an interview. I don't know if that's right or something like that. That's true. Yeah. And the question really is: Is there a problem in the NHS or in some organisations like the NHS to do with health, where it's more about who you know rather than what you know, in terms of getting to top positions? And if that's the case, then does that contribute to the issues that we have um, with the lack of diversity? Yeah, it it does. I mean. There's no way of wrapping this up. The NHS is pretty ugly when it comes to uh, black and ethnic minority groups. I mean, you've only got to look at photographs in conferences, people sitting on a platform, they're all grey old geezers like me, you know, with the occasional woman. Uh, the, I was, uh, in my career, I, I was on uh, uh, Baroness Julia Cumberbatch's committee, put the glass ceiling to encourage more women to get into senior management. Now that was a long time ago now, and I think we now do have more women in, in senior, but black and ethnic minorities are not properly represented at board level. They're not represented at director level. And how can a hospital providing a service to a community that is often predominantly from the black and ethnic minority communities, how can they claim to look after people if, if the board if the board and the people we don't look like them it, it, it's a no-brainer and I, I remember I was uh, at a conference once talking to two uh, ladies they were very charming I talked to them over lunch and and they both just uh, they were celebrating they just got their masters uh, and I said what are you going to do now and they said well we've probably got to the limit of our career and I said, well, why? And they said, well, we're from a black and ethnic minority grouping. They were West Indians. And, you know, I thought, this is crazy. We just lose the talent of people. You know, we have a, a diverse nation, and our public services should represent that diversity. And Roger Klein's report, The Snowy White Peaks, I mean, what a fantastic report that was. We featured it heavily. I've interviewed Roger about it. I reviewed the report. Uh, I hope he'll revisit that and see where we are on this journey, because it is a journey. But we don't do anywhere near well enough on that. And we should be leading the way. We're the biggest employer in the country. 
we should have the best employment track record on all of this. And when it comes to interviews, I, I mean, a lot of trusts do the blind interviewing thing. So the, the they have a form where you put all your stuff on, and then your personal stuff is here, and they tear that off. So when you go when you're reviewing, you don't know really who you're going to see, and that's the right way to do it. But I still don't think. That, well, you've only got to look at representation on the boards, representation of senior management. It's clear that we're doing something wrong. And we lose because we do something wrong. Because we lose the talent and the expertise of a huge number of people. But do you, do you see in your experience that there has been um, some type of bias or people being overlooked because they're just not in the right group or with the right people? Do you find that happening? Do you know, I'd love to say that I don't, but I do. Mm. I think uh, un unquestionably uh, decisions are made about employment which are not defensible and no one challenges them. So that is the big thing that really needs to be changed. Well, it does. One of the big things. It, yeah. it does. I mean, it does uh, because of the social justice argument. But it does because we lose talent. So everybody loses out. Well, look, I mean, this. let's kind of, let's be honest. If you are from a black and ethnic minority, the chances are you will have had to work harder to get where you want to be. I mean, you're studying now for your PhD, your doctorate. And you know how hard that is. But... Often you find that people from uh, ethnic minorities who are qualified are hugely highly qualified because they have had to get more qualified, to get noticed. And that means that we lose that talent. We lose access to those people, that brain power, and, and, and that community. And so, you know, you, you must have seen it yourself. And I was with uh, Prina Isar, who is the new people person. I interviewed her the other day and she was saying that she went out with the London Ambulance Service um, on court, you know, just to figure out what it was like. And they got to a house where uh, uh Indian and the, the elderly woman that was being cared for said that she didn't want that person to look after her. And she said to the crew, you know, does this happen often? They say every shift. And so she said, well, what do you do about it? They said, well, you just have to take it on the chin. And that's not right. No. You know, we need to support people more than we do. I mean, there is a moral and ethical dialogue. I don't know when people go into a and &E and they kick off and make racist remarks. And we all know it happens. Well, you can throw them out and not treat them, but if they die in the car park, then, you know, somebody's going to, somebody's heads in the noose for that. But we just need, I think employers need to, to do more. We have to accept the fact that the NHS is lovely and it does terrific stuff, but there is an ugly undertone which we need to get rid of. Thank you for that. That was a good, honest answer. Thank you. Um, so I think we've come to the end of our co-produced care chats. Um, is there something else you want yeah, to say? Yeah, I, I just want to say, we talked a bit about the uh, Academy of Fabulous Stuff. Oh, yes. And um, you know, people often ask me, 
what are, what are, what's my favourite stuff on the academy? You know, and I, and I, I can't do that because every, I'll offend, I'll, I'll please one person and offend thousands. But you know, if we look at the diversity of what we've got there, it, it is amazing. I mean, we have high-end stuff like uh, the emergency services collaboratives that have done a huge amount of work with the through the academy, and we've helped disseminate it. Uh, on getting flows through A&E and improving a, a huge amount of work. We've done work on sepsis, you know, best practice on sepsis, red and green days, um, uh, and we've helped support the pyjama paralysis. So we've done a lot of the high-end stuff, and we've done stuff at the, at the other end, the outside edge of it, of twiddle muffs. I don't know if you know about twiddle muffs, but people with dementia... Um, they, they get very fidgety and, and one of the answers is to give them a, a, a pharmaceutical solution, give them a pill, calm them down. But the twiddle muff, so you put your hand inside a muff, knitting muff, and there are buttons and things sewn in there so you can feel and twiddle them. And, and they have a, a, a calming effect for some patients. So we've got you know, the high-end stuff that's going on uh, in A&E right through to twiddle muffs. And I remember there was a, a share about quiet bins uh, in, a, in a ward where, if you've ever been on a ward, but you can never sleep because every time somebody puts something in the bin, they put their foot on the pedal, chuck it in the bin, take yeah. your foot off, and it goes crash. Yeah. <laughs> somebody came up with the idea of quiet bin, so you take your foot off the pedal and it comes quietly down, like posh lavatory seats yeah. now that we've all got. So, I mean, the diversity of stuff is an absolute delight. Because the bigger stuff and the smaller things are close to home that affect people every time well, they're in contact with the NHS. Yeah, we have a saying, so, you know, the small things are the big things. Mm. Because the closer you get to a small thing, the bigger it gets to the person in 